Listen to the Word of God, Isaiah chapter 50. I'm going to begin reading at verse 4. Isaiah 50, verse 4. These are the words of the servant. The sovereign Lord has given me an instructed tongue to know the word that sustains the weary. He wakens me morning by morning, wakens my ear to listen like one being taught. The sovereign Lord has opened my ears, and I have not been rebellious. I have not drawn back. I offered my back to those who beat me, my cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. I did not hide my face from mocking and spitting. Because the Sovereign Lord helps me, I will not be disgraced. Therefore have I set my face like flint, and I know I will not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who then will bring charges against me? Let us face each other. Who is my accuser? Let him confront me. It is the Sovereign Lord who helps me. Who is he that will condemn me? They will all wear out like a garment. The moths will eat them up. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the word of his servant? Let him who walks in the dark, who has no light, trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. But now, all ye who light fires and provide yourselves with flaming torches, go, walk in the light of your fires and of the torches you have set ablaze. This is what you shall receive from my hand. You will lie down in torment. Let me pray for us. Father, as we come to, to hear your word, I pray that you would give us the, the grace to obey, that you would give us ears to hear. Lord, some of us doubt the possibility that you could speak to us through an ancient text, through this book. And so, Lord, I pray that you would confront us with your power, with your truth, with the hope of the gospel. Lord, many of us come weighed down by the burdens of life even as we have already sung of, of feeling the, the sorrow and sadness. And so we need the announcement of hope this Christmas. Lord, point us to the hope of the gospel, the work of your servant, our Savior, Jesus. Let us see in his birth, in his life, in his death, in his resurrection, let us find there our hope, our eternal hope, and our present hope. Lord, strengthen us as we listen to your word. Change our hearts. Give us strength to obey. Bring us to a place of faith where we come praying in the name of Jesus, who is your servant, our Savior. Amen. It was a little over 20 years ago that we gave my dad a Christmas gift that made me completely obsolete when it came to helping in the garage. Now, if you've spent time working with me, you know I'm, I'm not the most handy of people, but but my dad is. He's a, a tinkerer. He's an engine guy. He's a car guy. And so he wanted my help. But my only job was really to just kind of shine the flashlight in that one spot. And so it was probably 21 or 22 years ago that we gave my dad the Christmas gift that made me obsolete. The snake light by Black & Decker. It goes around and round and round and round. So you, it, was, it was basically just a flashlight with this long bendable arm that that could kind of stand on its own like a, a snake ready to, like coiled up, ready to spring, or you could kind of hang it over the hood of the, the car and you could shine it wherever you needed. But that essentially meant I was no longer any help. Because that was really all I, I could do. Now, to be fair, I, I, I did point out to my dad when we gave it to him, the snake light does not go back into the kitchen for drinks. I will bring an ice cold cup of water back to the garage. See, sometimes help isn't really all that helpful. 
I mean, really, my dad probably let me help in the garage because he just wanted to spend time with me. I probably slowed him down. And remember, we're not talking about when I was a toddler. Like, I was a high school student. This was my car we were working on, and I still slowed him down. Because sometimes help doesn't really feel all that helpful. And I actually wonder if, if as, as I read, the promises of this passage, the help that is offered, felt to you like maybe that's not the kind of help I'd want. Maybe that's not really all that helpful. Because the servant declares with, with great hope. Look at, look at verse 7. Because the sovereign Lord helps me. He, he repeats it again in verse 9. It is the sovereign Lord who helps me. Now, that's a great and beautiful promise. The sovereign Lord, the king of the universe, the one with all the power and authority, he is the one who helps me. And yet, notice that it doesn't mean that this servant is protected from harm. No, actually, it's right after he says in verse 6, I offered my back to those who beat me, my cheeks to those who pulled my beard. I did not hide my face from mocking and spitting. It's in the midst of his suffering that he declares the sovereign Lord helps him. Now, I'm not sure that's the kind of help I would want. Because often when I pray for God's help, even when I, when I can say this is the kind of promise that I long for, I really want God to fix the problems in life. I want him to, to pull me out of the problems. But the servant, the Savior, the Messiah, Jesus, he says, in the midst of my suffering, the sovereign Lord helps me. And more than that, as we, as we look at this passage, I want us to see that it's through the suffering of Christ that the sovereign Lord helps me. Because as we, as we look at this passage, it's not just the, the sorrow and the sadness of life that I need help with. It's not the circumstances surrounding me alone. It's, it's within me. I am the problem, my sin and my rebellion. And so I want us to, to look at this song, this servant song, in the words of the, the servant himself speaking to us in the, in the first person, I just want us to just walk through it and look at what it teaches us about the servant, about the way in which God helps us. Look again at Isaiah 50, verses 4 and 5. We have here the, the understanding that the servant is the one who obeys the Lord. The servant obeys. Look at verse 4. The sovereign Lord has given me an instructed tongue to know the word that sustains the weary. He wakens me morning by morning, wakens my ear to listen like one being taught. The sovereign Lord has opened my ears, and I have not been rebellious. I have not drawn back. So do you see what, what these verses are telling us? The servant hears the word of God, and the servant obeys the word of God. The pattern is simple. The Lord teaches me from his word. The Lord speaks to me day by day, and I obey. Well, this is good news for us. Good news that the, the servant is the one willing to obey. Because if we, if we just look back at the verses which come before this song, we're reminded of Israel's inability to obey. The nation, the people of God, their failure to obey, their rebellion against God. Now we looked last Sunday at Isaiah 49, the, the beginning part of Isaiah 49, the, the second of the servant songs. But, but the end of the chapter, in the beginning of, of chapter 50, kind of what's between these two songs, is showing us the rebellion of, of the people of Israel. In 
Back in chapter 49, verse 14, the, the people of Israel, Zion, says, The Lord has forsaken me. The Lord has forgotten me. And God counters, No. No, I could never forget you. Like a, a mother holding her child, I have not forgotten you. You are mine. You belong to me. You are precious to me. Or, or look with me at the beginning of our own chapter, chapter 50. And, re, and remember, the, the, the chapter divisions, Isaiah didn't stop and say, this is chapter 50. He just, he just kept writing. We went back. And, and so that's why the, the break here comes at, at verse 50 rather than starting anew at verse 4 at, with the servant song. But, but look, at, look at the first three verses of our chapter. This is what the Lord says, Where is your mother's certificate of divorce with which I sent her away? Or, or to which of my creditors did I sell you? I mean, the, the people of Israel are saying, God, I, I feel like you've abandoned us. And why use this kind of legal language of, of divorce? Well, it's, it's because in the, in the Bible, the, the language of marriage is, is meant to picture the relationship God has with his people. It's more than just a, a loving friendship. It is that. It is a deep and intimate loving friendship, but it's one that's legally binding. There are vows made, promises given in marriage. And so the people are basically saying, God, I feel like you've divorced us. You've, you've left us alone. You've abandoned us, God. That's what it feels like, a people, a, a, an exiled people, a, a people under threat from foreign nations. But God says, where's the certificate? I didn't sign any paperwork. I didn't abandon you. How does, how does verse 1 continue? It's because of your sins you were sold. Because of your transgressions your mother was sent away. It's you who have abandoned me, your sin. See, Isaiah is, is pushing us deeper beyond just the circumstances of our lives, pushing even Israel deeper beyond the political hope that they were longing for to the, the spiritual need that they had. That the problem is within them, it's their sin. And so in verse 2 they come these questions where God asks the people, when I came, why was no one there? See, I showed up and you weren't there. I came for you and you weren't waiting for me. When I called, why was there no one to answer? And then he asks these questions to which we rhetorically know the answer. Was my arm too short to ransom you? Do I lack the strength to rescue you? Of course the answer is no. no God. But, but the people were saying, well, yeah, it kind of feels like it feels like God, maybe, you know, maybe you're up against gods that are just too big for you, the gods of the foreign nations. Maybe you're not powerful enough for this. Maybe you really, maybe you've lost. Maybe it's over. And so God reminds them what he's done. He says, again, this is back in verse 2, look there. By a mere rebuke, I dry up the sea. I turn rivers into a desert. Their fish rot for lack of water and die of thirst. I clothe the sky with darkness. I make the sackcloth its covering. You see what, what he's saying? I'm the one who, who dries up the sea. What is he reminding them of? He's reminding them of the time. You were slaves in Egypt, and remember, you were fleeing Pharaoh, and you were trapped against the edge of the sea with Pharaoh's army coming behind you, and what did I do? What did I do for you? I dried up the sea so that you were rescued. I am the God who rescues you. I have not abandoned you, God is telling them. You are the ones who have proved your faithlessness to me. You are the ones who are disobedient. It is your transgressions that are the problem. And so the contrast that Isaiah sets for us then, he's left us in this awful scenario, and then we hear the word of the servant speaking hope. Where Israel was faithless, Jesus is faithful. When Israel heard the word of God and disobeyed, Jesus hears the word of God and he obeys. Jesus is the true Israel. We saw that in last week's servant song, where the name Israel is given to this servant. He is, he is called Israel. 
I mean, Jesus is the, is the true man, the true Adam who hears the word of God and obeys. I mean, think back to the Garden of Eden. Adam was given a, 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 list of, a list of blessings and promises. He was given some commands to obey, but, and, and one prohibition. One thing he wasn't allowed to do, and what did he do? He disobeyed the command of God. See, where Adam disobeyed, Jesus obeys. The servant, the servant obeys the word of the Lord. And notice how it, how it happens here even. We're told in verse 4 that it happens morning by morning. It's day by day. It's a persistent obedience of Jesus. And that should be an encouragement to us. An encouragement to us as we, as we walk on the path as followers of Christ, those of us that claim to be Christians, that claim to follow Christ, that, that we should be those who morning by morning long to hear the commands of God, who want to hear what God says, who, who are willing to orient our lives not based on what our friends or neighbors or advertisers would tell us is right and what we need, but, but what does God's Word say? To humble ourselves, to listen to God's commands, and to do it repeatedly again and again, morning by morning, following the commands of God. And yet I know, I know when I throw around a word like obedience, and it comes up again in this passage, the passage will end in verse 10 about, about the one who fears the Lord, who obeys the word of, of the servant. I know when I talk about obedience, we kind of shudder a little bit. We kind of, kind of catch our breath and step back because none of us, none of us likes to be told, this is what you have to do, this is the way you have to live. We all want to live our, our own way. And we feel like somebody telling me what to do, demanding obedience from me, that's confining, that's constraining. But yet think of it. Who is the one who commands you? He is the sovereign Lord. He's the one with all authority and power. Who is the one who commands you? He is the gracious Lord, the one who rescues his people. And so who's the kind of person you would want to take commands from? Maybe the only person you would want to take commands from. The one who is all-powerful and all-gracious, God himself. And so obedience isn't confining, obedience is freeing. Because it lets us follow in the path of the servant, the one who listens day by day. Not only do we see that the servant obeys, as we continue, we see the servant suffers. Look at verses 6 and 7, where the servant himself says, I have offered my back to those who beat me. My cheeks to those who pulled out my beard, I did not hide my face from mocking and spitting. So the obedience of this servant is costly. This servant will suffer. Now the fourth of the, the servant songs, the most famous of them all, the one that's quoted most in the New Testament, we will look at on Christmas morning in Isaiah 53, where we see the suffering of this servant. But the, the words here in, in Isaiah 50, verse 6, are clear. This servant, Jesus, is the one who would suffer because of his obedience. In following the plan of God, the path of God, it would lead to his suffering. And think how the, the New Testament writers describe the ministry of Jesus. You can keep a finger here or, or stick your bulletin here so that you can come back to Isaiah 50, but turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew. The New Testament begins with, with four uh, storytellers, four gospel writers who tell the true story of, of Jesus' ministry, and Matthew is the first of them. Matthew tells us about the birth and the life of Jesus, but then, then we come to Jesus' suffering. So turn with me to Matthew chapter 26. We find Jesus before the religious leaders. 
He's there before the high priest. He's, he's been arrested and he's being charged with crimes. So they bring false witnesses. They accuse him. And, and then we read in Matthew 26, verse 65, the, the high priest's declaration in verse 65, the high priest tore his clothes and said, he has spoken blasphemy. Why do we need any more witnesses? Look, now you've heard the blasphemy. What do you think? He is worthy of death, they answered. Then they spit in his face and struck him with their fists. Others slapped him and said, prophesy to us, Christ, who hit you? I mean, do you hear the echo of Isaiah 50, verse 6? They spit in his face, and they'll take him before Pilate, the Roman governor, so that, that they, this execution of death can be, can be brought against him. Pilate washes his hands of the whole thing, but but when we turn the chapter to chapter 27, Matthew 27, verse 26, Pilate releases Barabbas, the insurrectionist, to the people because they've demanded it. But then read what it tells us. Matthew 27, verse 26. But Pilate had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. Then the governor's soldiers took Jesus in the praetorium and gathered the whole company of soldiers around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand and knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail the king of the Jews, they said. They spit on him. They took his, the staff and struck him on the head again and again. After they had mocked him, they took off the robe, put his own clothes on him. Then they led him away to crucify him. The servant suffers. The servant puts himself in the place of sinners. But do you, do you hear that, that we actually need both of these promises we've looked at in Isaiah 50? We need the servant who obeys. Theologians would call that the active obedience of God. Jesus actively keeps the commands of God. He's the one who hears the word and, and keeps it in, in its fullness, it, in its perfection. But then the suffering of Christ, we, we could call it his, his passive obedience, although, although we'll note that, that it's, it's not merely that he's letting it happen to himself. He's allowing it. He is the one making this, this all happen. But his, his willingness to suffer, and you need both of those. Because if Jesus wasn't the true lawkeeper, then, then he can't take our punishment because he himself would be guilty. But if he only keeps the commands but doesn't suffer in our place, then he wouldn't bear the wrath of God. Do you see we have a Savior who has done both? The Savior who obeys and the Savior who suffers is Jesus. Jesus is our promised Messiah. Now we'll come back to Matthew's Gospel again so you can kind of flip your bookmark and go back to Isaiah 50 with me. Because notice that that this, while we call it theologically the passive obedience of Christ, it's, there's nothing passive about it. Jesus allows this to happen. Because look again at verse 6. Jesus doesn't say, my enemies beat me. My enemies pulled out my beard. My enemies mocked me and spit in my face. He could have given them all of the blame. He could have, but what does he do? He says, I offered my back. I offered my face, my cheeks to them. I did not turn away when they spit in my face. Do you see, even in, the, even in the suffering of Christ, there is a power and a dignity and a purpose. Verse 7 will, will continue. Because the sovereign Lord helps me, I will not be disgraced. Therefore I have set my face like flint, like hardened stone I have purposed to go to the cross. 
See, Jesus willingly chooses this path. The servant who obeys, the servant who suffers, is the servant who willingly does so. He is not helpless in any of this. This is Jesus' purpose for us. He remains in full control. And so the servant obeys, the servant suffers, and then the servant is vindicated. The servant is proven to be the one who is right and holy and just. Look at the way verses 8 and 9 continue. He who vindicates me is near. Who then will bring charges against me? Let us face each other. Who is my accuser? Let him confront me. The language is now the language of the courtroom. It's legal language. Someone has brought an accusation against Jesus. And, and again, we hear the, the, the echoes of, of this prophecy in the ministry of Jesus. We turn back to, to Matthew's gospel. When Jesus is there before the Sanhedrin, again to, to Matthew chapter 26. When the, the people, the, the chief priests, the religious leaders, in Matthew 26 verse 59, the chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for false evidence against Jesus so they could put him to death. But they didn't find any, though many false witnesses came forward. You see, what, what, what's happening in Isaiah 50 is lay out the charges. Lay them all out. Come and accuse me. I stand righteous and just before God. That's what the servant is saying. And so in his trial, the, the, they have to bring false accusations. And eventually, we already read it, what do they, they convict Jesus of? Blasphemy. But that's, that's a, a wrong application of blasphemy laws because if God himself claims to be standing in your midst and he really is there, then it's not blasphemy. It's not blasphemy when Jesus says, I am the Son of God. I am God himself. And so Jesus is condemned under false accusations, under a wrong application of the law. It, this is injustice taking place. And you remember, this is God's purpose that the servant who obeys will be the servant who suffers, but God will vindicate him. Even as we turn to, to Matthew chapter 27, we have Jesus before the Roman governor. And remember how that takes place? The, the accusations are brought, Jesus remains silent, and so Pilate decides, I want nothing to do with this. I wash my hands of all of this. The blood, it, it's on you. I would let this man go. But you know what? I'm going to leave it up to you. What do you want me to do? I could let go of this, this violent insurrectionist Barabbas or this guy who seems to be innocent. Well, I can't find anything wrong with Jesus. What do you want me to do? And the crowds demand that, that they, they let, he let Barabbas go free. And so in Matthew 27, verse 22, Pilate asks the crowd, what shall I do then with Jesus who is called the Christ? They all answered, crucify him. Why? What crime has he committed, asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. And so when Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but that instead an uproar was starting, he took water, he washed his hands in front of the crowd. I am innocent of this man's blood, he said. It is your responsibility. All the people answered, let his blood be on us and our children. Then he released Barabbas to them, but had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. See, the accusations are brought against Jesus, but even the false witnesses can't sustain enough of a coherent story to, to bring Jesus to conviction. It's only when Jesus himself declares the truth that he is God's son that injustice takes place and they put him to death. But Jesus is the one who will be vindicated. Back in Isaiah, he's asking that question. Come stand before me. Stand in front of me. Bring your accusations against me. 
Verse 9, we're told in Isaiah 50, it is the sovereign Lord who helps me. Who is he that will condemn me? Do you hear the question? Who will condemn me? God is the one who will vindicate me. And so the, the people who bring condemnation against me, the ones who think I'm guilty, well, what's going to happen to them? Verse, the end of verse 9, they'll wear out like a garment. The moths will eat them up. Their, their words will, will have no lasting effect because Jesus will be proven to be innocent. In his death, he bears our sins upon himself. He, he offers us real forgiveness. And then God proves that that, that power, the, the power of Jesus to forgive sins has, has been declared to be true. Jesus is declared to be the one who is righteous and holy. When? When does that happen in the ministry of Jesus? I mean, we've looked at, at the, the life of Jesus, his perfect obedience. We've looked at his suffering and his death. But when is he vindicated? When is he declared to be righteous? The Apostle Paul tells us at the beginning of Romans, he begins his letter to the church in Rome by telling us that it is in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead that we see his vindication. We see his justification that he is declared to be the one who is right and righteous. This is the way that the apostle describes it. He, he describes Jesus, the Son of God, who as a, to his human nature, he was a descendant of David. Now Romans 1 verse 4, and who through the spirit of holiness was declared with power to be the Son of God by His resurrection from the dead. He is Jesus Christ, our Lord. You see, Isaiah 50 is giving us the gospel story. The servant who obeys, the servant who suffers, the servant who is vindicated. And so that question echoes. That question of Isaiah 50, verse 9, Who is he that will condemn me? There is no one left to condemn Christ. He's proven before all of humanity to be the the righteous Son of God. And so who who is left to condemn? It's not God. God has declared him to be righteous. And that's the kind of question that the Apostle Paul echoes again. I just read to you from Romans chapter 1, and if if you flipped to Romans chapter 8, that glorious passage reminding us of the, the work of God through His Spirit and through Christ. We read the, the question in Romans 8, verse 33. Who will bring any charge against those, whom God who, against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. I mean, who will stand and condemn the people of God? That's what Paul is saying. He's, he's echoing the language of Isaiah 50. And then he continues in, in Romans 8, verse 34. Who is he that condemns? Who will bring condemnation against the people of God? said it's Jesus Christ who died more than that who was raised to life he is at the right hand of God also interceding for us the only one who could bring condemnation Jesus is the one who gave himself for us to bring forgiveness and freedom there is no one left to bring accusation against you if you have put your trust in Christ if you have accepted his forgiveness claimed his righteousness as your own if you see the story of Christmas the Savior's arrival, the the servant's arrival as your own. And so these passages of Scripture, Isaiah 50 is challenging us today to put our trust in Christ, to turn to Him, to find our vindication, our justification, our righteousness and forgiveness in Jesus Christ. Will you turn to Him? Perhaps the story of Christmas, it, it just feels so familiar. You can sing along with all of the carols, but you've not claimed it as your own. Will you today claim Christ as your Savior? 
the suffering servant who died for you. Because as we, as we conclude Isaiah 50, we'll, we'll end by looking at the final verses, we, we see the, the really only two responses available to those who hear the story of Christmas, the story of the promised servant's ministry. We have verses 10 and 11. In verse 10, we have the, the, the people who obey. And in verse 11, the people that go their own way. Those are the only two choices when you hear the ministry of Christ. To obey Christ or to go your own way. Look at those who, who are willing to, to, to listen to this message and obey. Look at verse 10. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the word of his servant? Let him who walks in the dark, who has no light, trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. Did you see the, the verbs piled up telling us how we should respond? To fear the Lord, obey his word, walk in, walk in God's path, to trust in the name of the Lord, to rely on God. That's what it means to follow Christ. So no longer trust ourselves, but to trust him, to, to follow him in obedience. But, but notice with me that there's no promise here that, that Jesus, that trusting in him will immediately and automatically change the circumstances of your life. For how is the one walking who fears the Lord, who obeys the word? What does he see around him? Look again at verse 10. Let him who walks in the dark and who has no light. Trust in the name of the Lord. Rely on his God. You see, it's the same promise that was given to the servant. Not a removal of suffering, not a radical change of your circumstances, but the promise that God will be with you in the midst of your suffering. That as you walk in darkness, you can reach and grab your Father's hand so that you will not go astray. Because in the midst of, of sorrow and sadness and pain and darkness, what do we try and do? We try and find our own way. We try and, and light our own path. And that's verse 11. It, the, it, it, it's almost mocking in its tone. But now, all you who light fires and provide yourselves with flaming torches, you've, you've found your own path, your own way to get through this darkness. You've lit your own flame. And almost in a mocking way, the... the the servant just says, go, walk in the light of your fires and of the torches you have set ablaze. Just go. But then notice what the, the end will be. The chapter ends with this harsh and horrific warning. This is what you shall receive from my hand. You will lie down in torment. So there are only two options when you hear the message. Either you obey and respond or you go your own way and you're left in torment and judgment. So you and I are being called to respond to the Christmas message with obedience, with hope, with joy, announcing this message to others. The servant came, the servant obeyed, the servant suffered, but the servant has been vindicated. And so your hope is in this servant, Jesus Christ. And the response that's demanded of us is to fear the Lord, to obey the word of the servant, to follow after him. Obedience is the response that's demanded of us. Staff Sergeant John Beale of McDonough, Georgia, was killed in action in Afghanistan in 2009. The editors of his local newspaper explained the circumstances of his death. He was killed by an IED, an improvised explosive device. And then they listed the time that his military escort would arrive at the local airport. They said that the family of Staff Sergeant Beale would like 
time alone together at the airport. But the newspapers ask neighbors then to gather along the route from the airport to the funeral home. They actually listed the entire route in the newspaper. We'll start on Dividend Drive to Highway 74. From Highway 74, we'll, we'll go to Georgia Highway 85. Listed the entire route. They asked those who were able to line the streets along the route, the route to help honor this fallen hero and give him the welcome home he deserves. The details spread by word of mouth, spread through the newspaper reports, spread online as people, people in this community shared. And so thousands turned out to line the route of this man who had been willing to die, who had given his life in service of others. Families standing on the curb with, with flags in hand as the procession went past. Because communities, this community, struggles to, to honor one who, is, who has done so much. Struggles to find a way to, to make sense of it, to, to honor this family, to show them that, that they will not be forgotten, that their sacrifice was, was not in vain. You and I, we are given clear instructions on how we are to honor the death of Jesus, the one who came to give himself for us. Isaiah 50 has told us the story of Jesus, and then it says, Fear the Lord, obey the Lord, listen to him, trust in him, walk in his path. Hold on to his hand in the midst of darkness. See, we're given the, the clear command to obey the servant. And we're given the rich promises of God's word. The promise that even in the darkness, even in times of sorrow, it is the sovereign Lord. The sovereign Lord, the King of the universe, with all power and authority. He is the one who is with us, the gracious Lord who sent the servant. It is the sovereign Lord who will help us. Let me pray. Lord, we thank you that your word gives us hope. Hope in the midst of our darkness. Lord, we feel the weight of sorrow, the, the pain of, of sadness, and we need your comfort. We need your hope. So Lord, let us honor Christ with our lives. Let us honor him through obedience. Lord, for those who, who hear this message and now want to, want to turn to Christ and trust in him, Lord, grant them that even now as we pray, as we conclude this service in song, let them come to Christ and see him as their Savior, trusting in him for their salvation. Lord, strengthen us, encourage us in the work of the gospel. Lord, make this Christmas message real to us, tangible. Let it, let it be expressed in our lives, in our, in our response, in our obedience. Lord, let us proclaim this message to a world that listens. Lord, we come to give you thanks for the servant, the one who has obeyed your word, the servant, the one who has suffered in our place, the servant who has been vindicated in his resurrection. Lord, we come to give praise to Jesus Christ, your servant, our Savior. Amen.